Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon to everybody. Uh, we uh, always start a little bit late because I notice people always trickle in a little late, especially when the weather is a bit uh, severe like it is today. You don't expect early October to be 95 degrees, but that's what we've got. Um, my name is Paul Coyer. I'm a research professor here at the Institute of World Politics. Uh, a lot of people think we're a think tank, and although we do like to think that we think a lot here, we're actually graduate school. Uh, we have uh, five different master's degrees, 18, I think 18 one-year certificates, and a new doctoral program. Um, so if any of you want to talk to us about that, there are people outside you can speak to after that. Uh, talk to me and I'll, uh, I'll introduce you. We have uh, one of our uh, former students in the back here, right? Uh, and uh, some other people from, from the staff that are here as well that want to talk to you about that. Um, Michael Pregent, who we're here to, uh, to listen to today, is a longtime friend of mine. He's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute in the area of the Middle East. Uh, he spent 28 years with the uh, U.S. Army as an intelligence officer, uh, bouncing back and forth between CENTCOM, uh, served and, and other places, served in Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Um, was embedded advisor with the Peshmerga in Mosul uh, for a couple of years, uh, worked as a civilian SME, special uh, uh, employee working for the DIA, has been a political military advisor to uh, USFI focused on reconciliation, insurgency, and Iranian influence in Iraq. Uh, Michael and I just did an event here in January on Iran's influence in Iraq. This is one of his specialties. We're in for real privilege, so since I'm starting a little late, I'll keep this intro minimal. Please join me in welcoming Michael Pregent. Thanks for having me. Uh, I feel completely prepared to talk to you today because I just got back from Paris, Brussels, and Berlin, where I was talking to uh, EU members of parliament and the EU. And anytime I mentioned Iran, 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 they said Trump, Trump, Trump. They could care less about what the Islamic Republic is doing. And we got to get back to a place. We got to get back to a place where both Republicans and Democrats look at the Islamic Republic of Iran as a geopolitical foe and a dedicated enemy, and we stop politicizing this whole thing, because that's what I saw happening firsthand when I was in Europe. And uh, basically, their argument is everything that Iran is doing now is because Trump walked out of the Iran deal. They seem to forget what I'm getting ready to talk to you about. So let's go with that. Let's uh, look, at, look at the Islamic Republic of Iran since 1970. So in 1970, the Shah enters Iran into the Non-Nuclear Proliferation Act. In 1979, there's the revolution. In 1979, the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini says Iran has no interest in a nuclear program. It, it's un-Islamic, we're not going to do it. In 1984, he changes his mind. In 2002, 2005, Iran starts violating the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Well, let's look at that timeline so we can talk about what you, the Islamic Republic of Iran has been doing. Uh, I've developed a parallel timeline for its nuclear activities and its terrorism activities and, and see how they sync up. So in 1984, the same time the Supreme Leader is saying that Iran should actually pursue a nuclear program we have the bombing of the Marine Barracks, well, in 1983. 
1985, we have the murder of a U.S. Navy diver, Rob Stedham. Rob Stedham's brother, Ken Stedham, is a friend of mine. Rob Stedham was a U.S. Navy diver who was identified on that TWA flight as, a milita as military personnel, U.S. military personnel. He was beaten up on the plane. He was tortured for two days. Then he was executed and dumped out of the plane on the tarmac in 1984. Iran had a direct role. When I say Iran, the Islamic Republic, the IRGC, its Quds Force, Qasem Soleimani in particular, had a direct role in working with Lebanese Hezbollah to do that. So that's 1985, 83, you have the Marine Corps bombing, Marine Corps barracks bombing. Um, so let's fast forward. 9-11, 2001, big deal. We start working, at least start talking to the Islamic Republic on what Al-Qaeda is doing in Afghanistan early on. Uh, <coughs> Afghanistan uh, was a place where Iran, its Revolutionary Guard Corps, had a good footprint, good, con good connections with the uh, tribal leaders in Farah province and other places. And they were willing to help, but we also found out after 9-11 is that the Islamic Republic of Iran was harboring senior al-Qaeda leadership. At the same time, they were trying to help us with the actual fighters on the ground. So it was an overture uh, towards us. It became more of an overture in 2003 when we invaded Iraq, and Iran thought it was being surrounded. So it had American forces in Afghanistan, American forces in Iraq. It's time to work with the Americans. Uh, but at the same time, when you're trying to work with the Americans, but we have intelligence that you're harboring senior al-Qaeda personnel, and you're starting to arm the Shia militias in Iraq with weapon systems that can kill Americans, it's hard to, it's hard to balance that, that uh, willingness to help us at the same time, active measures to kill us at the same time. So, looking at uh, 2002 to 2005, 2002 to 2005, Iran starts violating the, nu the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And that gets everybody's attention, to include the Russians and the Chinese. It's important to remember the Russian and Chinese red lines for the Islamic Republic of Iran's pursuit of nuclear weapons is the NPT, the Non-Nuclear Proliferation Treaty. We had an opportunity to meet with uh, some of our Russian counterparts last year. We were talking about Syria, but we specifically started talking about the JCPOA, the Iran deal. And it was a surprise to, to some colleagues of mine to find out unanimously from, from these five different think tanks that were tied to Putin that they were against the Islamic Republic of Iran having a nuclear weapon. They don't want the Islamic Republic to have a nuclear weapon on their border. And that, that was key, and that was actually a surprise to me. So the NPT is actually stronger than the JCPOA, and we'll get into that here in a second. So 2002 to 2005, you have violations of the, of the MPT, the IAEA, the International Atomic uh, Energy Association, right? Is that right? Uh, starts looking at these violations and starts putting, we start putting sanctions on the Islamic Republic of Iran for violating the, new, the MPT, the Non-Nuclear Proliferation Treaty. 2005, they introduced what's called the Explosively Formed Penetrator. It's an EFP. It's an IED, an improvised explosive device, that has uh, a greater lethality and can actually penetrate our armor. We upgraded our armor in Iraq to protect us from IEDs. The Iranians said, well, you can't protect yourselves from EFPs. So they introduced the EFP, the Explosively Formed Penetrator, in 2005. 
and recently declassified reports show that EFPs killed roughly around 604 Americans during the, the Iran, uh, correction, during Operation Iraqi Freedom. So that's bad behavior before the JCPOA, that's bad behavior after the NPT, that's bad behavior with uh, sanctions relief, and that's bad behavior with sanctions being imposed. So let's fast forward to 2015. 2015, well actually from 2005 to 2015, we start looking at negotiating a new nuclear deal with Iran because they're simply not adhering to the NPT. And Condoleezza Rice had a, had a program, uh, she was trying to actually start a nuclear uh, agreement with Iran uh, under the Bush administration. But as we know, when the Obama administration came in, in 2008, 2009, uh, during the surge in Iraq, uh, Petraeus took a helicopter trip with then President-elect uh, Obama in 2008. And President Obama said for everyone to hear that the United States is going to leave Iran. We're going to leave it during his administration. Well, that was a message to Qasem Soleimani to increase attacks, to step up those attacks. I was in Baghdad at the time, and we had uh, detained about 3,000 uh, Shia militia members tied to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps that we were not going to release. All of a sudden, we were told to start releasing them, phasing them out, or making arguments why we should keep them where they were. Uh, among those, were members that participated in what we call the Karbala attack. So in 2007, while we're working with Iran to try to get a nuclear deal, Qasem Soleimani and Musa Dakhduk from Lebanese Hezbollah, along with a militia in Iraq called the League of the Righteous, or Saab Ahl Haq, uh, plan an operation to kidnap five Americans to trade for four IRGC captive officers, the Erbil Four. Uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, if you don't know what the IRGC is. This operation took place in, in 2007. Uh, they ended up killing one American on the objective and then executing the other four down the road when the plan, the plan went awry. So while we're negotiating on a nuclear program with Iran, they're plotting the kidnapping of Americans and they ended up executing them. So those detainees that I was talking about, when we started uh, being forced to release them. Musa Dakhduk, Lebanese Hezbollah's premier uh, operative in Iraq, who had the portfolio, is in our, is in our captivity. Case Ghazali, the leader of Assad al-Haq, or the League of the Righteous, is in our, our captivity, and so is Leif Ghazali, Case's brother. In 2009, we release, or 2009, we release Leif. In 2010, we release Case Ghazali. In 2011, we release Dr. Duke to the Prime Minister of Iraq, uh, Nouri al-Maliki. He tells us he's not going to release Dr. Duke. Within 24 hours, Dr. Duke is released. And he's the operative from Lebanese Hezbollah. And this is all at the request of Qasem Soleimani and the Islamic Republic of Iran through its Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the Quds Force. So that's 2007 through 2011. While we're negotiating uh, with, with Iran on a nuclear deal, of course, this is accelerated under the uh, Obama campaign, so we have our Obama administration. So we have to look at what Iran was doing doing during that time. So we end up leaving Iraq as soon as we start messaging that they we're going to leave Iraq. Prime Minister Maliki, along with Qasem Soleimani, start purging all of the Kurdish commanders and Sunni commanders from the Iraqi security forces. Those that were most effective 
helping us kill al-Qaeda. Those were the most effective and had the best relationships with, with Americans. Uh, we also start seeing signs of instability in Syria. We start seeing signs of instability uh, in Iraq. We start seeing these warnings and indicators of something coming. In Iraq, it's, it's, it's instability in northern uh, Iraq. In Syria, we start having these conversations. So we're going to 2012 now. Who's in Syria? Well, it's Jabal al-Nusra, an al-Qaeda affiliate, and it's Lebanese Hezbollah. Let's just let them kill each other. That's great. They can just go to Syria and they can just kill each other. That's not what happened. <laughs> These groups grew into other groups. The militias grew into new militias, and of course, we know what happened with the Islamic, uh, I'm sorry, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant uh, with ISIS. So, 2012, we have instability in Syria. Syria is very key to the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, we have we have a purge of effective Sunni and Kurdish commanders in Iraq. We have a, a Baghdad that, that now isn't hiding the fact that it is in the Iranian sphere of influence. So we go forward to the ISIS invasion of Mosul in 2014. And that's how I got into this, this whole, whole world. I was in the private sector. I was doing nothing with intelligence. I was doing nothing with the Middle East other than trying to sell U.S. goods to uh, Middle Eastern clients. And ISIS rolls into Mosul, and we get a phone call. And the phone call is from General Petraeus, who's now a civilian. Uh, you know, and, and we start talking, what happened? What happened in Mosul? And Derek Harvey and I uh, wrote an op-ed. Derek Harvey was General Petraeus' senior intel guy, and I worked for Derek Harvey. I was the Mosul expert because I had been in Mosul during this whole campaign where we started looking at what McMaster was doing in Talafur uh, and what we should do across the country. And what McMaster was doing in Talafur was what became the surge concept, the awakening of building Sunni manpower and Sunni intel to go against not only al-Qaeda, but also against the militias tied to Iran. So fast forward to 2014, what happened? Well, Maliki got rid of effective commanders and that let ISIS roll in with 1,600 fighters. There was nobody to call. Mosul falls. Ramadi falls to 1,600 fighters. Tikrit falls to 400. And we basically see northern Iraq just consumed, at least with a footprint, an ISIS footprint. Same thing in Syria with Derazur and Raqqa. So 2014, we start providing intelligence and air support to Iraq on the condition that the militias stay in the background that the militias aren't out front, that Maliki steps down. Maliki had just won an election. Uh, the militias were being commanded by Qasem Soleimani. He's on the ground with them, along with Abu Mehdi al-Muhendis. This is while the Obama administration is negotiating an Iran deal with, with the Islamic Republic, a deal which, at that point, uh, any travel by Qasem Soleimani was considered a violation of UN Security Council resolutions. Qasem Soleimani shouldn't have been able to step out of Iran. Any weapons proliferation, any support to militias, anything like that was a violation of UN Security Council resolutions. Iran was already uh, violating UN Security Council resolutions in the open. Uh, why were we ever going to think they would adhere to something in the shadows? That being the Iran deal. 2015, I become executive director of Veterans Against the Iran Deal. It's basically a grouping of intelligence officers, former special operators, law enforcement. We had CIA, NSA, DIA, 
Ken Stedham, Rob Stedham's brother. We had veterans, uh, veterans and also victims of Iranian terrorism going back to the, uh, the bombing of the Marine barracks. And we presented a case. Listen, the Iran deal, we didn't even touch the nuclear portfolio. We didn't even look at Annex 1 of the JCPOA of the Iran deal. We looked at Annex 2. Because Annex 2, we saw individuals that should have never been there. Qasem Soleimani was there. The Quds Force was there. Mohammad Reza Nakti, the leader of the besiege, was there. There were individuals that should not have been on Annex 2. And we started seeing shipping lines, banks, this whole... Um, infrastructure that Qasem Soleimani used to spread uh, terror or to spread the Wilayat uh, Fakah in, in the Middle East. And forgive me if I didn't say that right, but that's basically you know, pushing the revolution to the Middle East and the Levant. And we started seeing all of the things that he would need to be able to do this delisted under Annex 2. So we just focused on that. And when we briefed the General Mattis and General Allen on Annex 2 of the JCPOA, they said they were against that. So, well, if you're against Annex 2, you can't be for the Iran deal because the Iran deal is giving this away. And we always heard the argument that the JCPOA, the Iran deal, was never meant to, to deal with regional behavior, never meant to deal with ballistic missiles, never meant to deal with support of terrorism. Annex 2 dealt with all three of those. Annex 2 basically uh, reinvigorated and accelerated Qasem Soleimani's ability to actually uh, send weapons to Lebanese Hezbollah. 2015, they introduced new lethal capabilities to a group called Ansar, Ansar Allah. Ansar Allah are the Houthis. The Houthi-Saudi uh, war begins in 2015 while we're negotiating the Iran deal. Uh, again, Assad is on his heels right now in Syria. Assad doesn't look like he's going to survive. Russia's not in Syria yet. The United States is, is looking to see what we can do. We're trying to build a Sunni awakening in Syria to deal with these threats, to deal with the ISIS threat, and to also protect the Sunni population. So at this point, while we're negotiating a nuclear deal with Iran, Iran has created, when I say Iran, the Islamic Republic has created two new militias in Iraq, actually three, Kitab Imam Ali, Harakat al-Nujava, and the other one, what's the other one, sorry about that, so, so two. There's some other ones that have been created since, but those are two big ones that we've since designated, uh, which is great, we've designated them as a terrorist group. Create new militias, give new lethal capabilities to the Houthis. And then when the Iran deal is agreed upon, we see Qasem Soleimani go to Moscow. Qasem Soleimani brings in Russia into Syria. Russia brings in S-300s. Russia brings in S-400s. Russia starts using area denial weapons against the Sunni populations in Syria. Assad is stabilized. Iran's able to use the 100 billion or 150 billion to keep pushing money uh, to its proxies. It's able to create new proxies. It's able to do things, uh, give the Houthis capabilities, to do cyber attacks in Bahrain, to try to uh, foment sectarian strife in the eastern provinces of Saudi Arabia, to continue to push a capability in Central and South America. And that's something Paul and I talked about in one of our previous panels. And all of this while we're negotiating with Iran. So when the president, President Obama, gets ready to uh, certify that Iran is in compliance with the Iran deal in January 2016, what does the Islamic Republic do on that day? The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy puts 12 U.S. sailors on their knees in violations of the Geneva Convention, films them before notifying their families, films them, and then every year they celebrate this. 
this by having a parade where they've actually put this, uh, they, they've uh, basically made a statue of this event with 12 U.S. sailors on their knees. And that's the night, uh, I had lost respect for Ben Rhodes a long time before that, but that's the night when Ben Rhodes said, well, we're having the Islamic Republic hold on to our sailors until the morning because it's too dangerous for them to go at night. Well, anybody who's ever been in the U.S. military knows this phrase. We own the night. We're not afraid to do things at night. So just that statement itself just showed how unserious the administration was in looking at the Islamic Republic of Iran. So 2016, certified. So 2016, Assad propped up. Um, you have the ISIS campaign. You have Houthi uh, lethal uh, capabilities. Uh, they're more capable than ever of doing things. In uh, 2017 or 2016, we have an election. And President Trump comes in saying that the Iran deal was a bad deal. Well, while I was an executive director of veterans against the Iran deal, we ran a, a negative ad against President Trump. Because President Trump thought the Iran deal was a bad deal at the time because we didn't get anything for it. We didn't make anything off of it. And we said, sir, it's a bad deal because it's a bad deal. It's a bad deal because in its current state, and I'll fast forward, uh, every Democratic candidate is saying they would just jump back into the JCPOA. Think about that statement. If you jump back into the JCPOA without negotiating ballistic missiles and sunset clauses and inspections and the undeclared sites, the sites that they carved out of the JCPOA, I love saying this, in the second term of Kamala Harris's presidency, the Islamic Republic of Iran will be able to put a, ballist, a warhead on top of a ballistic missile and be in compliance with the JCPOA. That's how bad this deal was. Now, others that worked on the JCPOA will say, Mike, that's not true. That's not true because Iran will renegotiate the JCPOA in 2028. Why would you renegotiate if you already have a position of strength? It's just not, it's just not what happens. So 2017, McMaster says something that, that signals that the Iran deal is going away. Early on, he says, we're going to look at that sanctioning the IRGC, the IRGC Quds Force, and we're going to keep. We're going to make it very difficult for European uh, investors and the private sector to invest in Iran because it's toxic. Um, that signals things. So we start seeing a push, a push to preserve the Iran deal. Of course, the president walks away in May of 2018 from the JCPOA. So in 2018, just just to go back to where we are, um, we have Russia, Iran, and Assad destroying Sunni cities in Syria. We have the Mosul operation that literally destroyed 60% of Mosul. Now, we participated in that, but it only benefited uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran and Baghdad. We didn't destroy ISIS. Okay? A lot of you might maybe former military here, but all we did was knock down buildings. We did not destroy ISIS. ISIS is operating at the Al-Qaeda model. In the Al-Qaeda model, and there, you can basically Google any Iraqi city short of Basra and see that the Islamic, uh, excuse me, the Islamic uh, State can still conduct attacks. ISIS can, can still conduct attacks. Um, so, 2018, we walk away from the JCPOA. Uh, everybody says it's a big mistake. 2019, we designate the IRGC in its entirety as a terrorist organization. It was a game changer. Some of my colleagues on the other side say, how is it a game changer? Well, it's a game changer because you, you, when you designate the entire arm, military arm of a country, it's a big deal. And everybody 
they only talk about State Department equities, passports, and visas. DOD has equities when you're designated as a as a, uh, a foreign terrorist organization, an FTO. Before uh, the Islamic Republic or the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps was designated as an FTO, my colleagues on the other side of this issue said, well, none of it matters until they're designated as an FTO. So then they were designated as an FTO. So, well, none of that matters now. But we're seeing that, that it does matter. What it's done is it, it's made Iran's economy toxic. The Islamic Republic of Iran's economy is toxic to private sector investment. Now, you'll hear European governments uh, urge their private sector to invest in Iran, and the private sector says no. John Kerry, before he, le he left the Obama administration, before the Obama administration left, uh, tried to urge European companies to invest in Iran. And the private sector said no, because they heard U.S. Treasury loud and clear. If you invest in Iran, you'll be subject to uh, U.S. secondary sanctions. That's the case right now. So getting to the, getting to the argument that all of this bad behavior started the moment the president walked out of the Iran deal in May of 2018, is just not true. Okay, uh, this is, remember this phrase, it's this deal or war? It's this or war. That was, that was the argument made by the other side. It's either a really bad deal or war. Well, this is what war with Iran looks like. We're looking at it right now. This is what war with the Islamic Republic of Iran looks like. We're not going to invade Iran. There will never be another Iraq or Afghanistan-like invasion of a foreign country because we aren't very good at that type of deal. Uh, we've been in Afghanistan for, what, almost 19 years. We've been in uh, Iraq for, our, for 17 years. And we just don't get these things right. This is what war with Iran looks like. Now, the wild card has always been, what would Lebanese Hezbollah do? We, we just saw what Lebanese Hezbollah would do. They're not ready for what they did in 2006 because in 2006 they learned that the land bridge isn't there to support them. It's not ready yet. Well, the land bridge is operational now through Iraq, through Syria, and into Lebanon, but it's a target-rich environment. It's a target-rich environment for Israeli airstrikes. If anybody's been looking at, at the recent developments in the last 45 days, you have Israel conducting airstrikes in Iraq against Qasem Soleimani militias. These militias were built under the protections of the JCPOA, Assad was propped up under the protections of the JCPOA. Lethal aid was given to the Houthis under the protection of the JCPOA. And now outside of it, we're unconstrained. We can do things. Um, Israel is conducting airstrikes in Iraq. And the beautiful thing about it is, Iraqis aren't protesting against these airstrikes. They don't view it as a violation of Iraqi sovereignty. I'm not talking about all Iraqis. I'm talking about the Iraqis that are outside of Baghdad. The Shia, the Sunni, and the Kurds don't view it as a, as a violation of Iraq's sovereignty because they view it as an attack on Iraq, an attack on what Qasem Soleimani has put in place. They're protesting today in Baghdad. Uh, individuals are being shot. They're being shot by militia members. They're being shot by a highly uh, a sectarian force. Uh, you know, two, two dead, 200 injured. But they're not protesting the Israeli airstrikes. They want jobs, electricity, clean water, and internet. That's what they're protesting about in Iraq. And this, this argument that, that if we walked out of the Iran deal, it would hurt us with North Korea, it's just not the case. Kim, if you look at what Kim Jong-un was doing in the last year of the Obama administration, 
he accelerated his his ballistic missile launches. He accelerated his his uh, atomic uh, weapons tests. Uh, he accelerated his nuclear program in hopes of getting a JCPOA-like deal, one laden with incentives, front-loaded with incentives for promises, where you're able to carve out military sites that you don't want inspected, where you're able to put in sunset clauses. And what I love about how bad the Iran deal was is if you listen to the words of, of Senator Schumer and Menendez when they're talking to the U.S. president about how he should proceed with North Korea, they say it should address ballistic missiles. It should address regional behavior. There should be no sunset clauses. Uh, there should be inspections of all sites to include inspections by Americans and Canadians, something that the Iran deal excluded, even Canadians. You know when we travel to Europe, we always say we're from Canada because we want to say we're from America. It's easy. I always say I'm from Texas because as soon as you say that, they go straight to John Wayne and cowboys and boots and stuff like that. You can say you're from New York and get away from, from it, get away with it, Texas and California. There may be some other places, but those are about the three states where everybody has some sort of movie reference that takes you out of the politics of Washington, D.C., which is great. Anyway, Schumer and Menendez say that any nuclear deal with Kim Jong-un should not have any of the things that were in the JCPOA. So it actually strengthened our position with the North Korean dictator. Didn't weaken it. He wanted a JCPOA-like deal. The um, this is what war with Iran looks like. Let me let me, ex let me expand, expand that. So we're going to shut down the Strait of Hormuz. They, they can't do it. This isn't the 1980s. We have intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance platforms. We have a deterrence now. We don't need all of Europe to be part of this coalition. We just need the right amount of people to be in this coalition. We have the Australians, the Brits. Uh, we have uh, some of our Gulf Arab allies, but they're also seeing wavering U.S. positions on Iran. It's really hard now to get our allies to trust us when they see these recent examples of betrayal. You know, the Israelis thought the JCPOA was a betrayal. On a, on a macro level, the, the KDP in Iraq, in northern Iraq, found uh, not supporting the referendum as a betrayal. Now the YPG in northern Syria are finding uh, our lack of support or a lack of protection against Turkish airstrikes west of the Euphrates uh, as, a, as a betrayal. So it's really hard to get our allies to do very difficult things when they don't see the Americans standing behind them. And Iran is very aware of that. Uh, they, they know, that's why they're able to talk to the UAE, put pressure on them, because the U.S., look what they did to Saudi Arabia. They're very smart, right? So they picked an unpopular U.S. ally to attack Saudi Arabia is a bipartisan magnet for criticism in this in this town. Uh, it's a it's a it's a necessary ally. Iran's a dedicated enemy. But as soon as you mention Iran, the first thing out of somebody else's mouth is what? What about Saudi Arabia? So I always answer, what about Jennifer Aniston? People say, well, what does she have to do with anything? Exactly. She has nothing. To, just like Saudi Arabia has nothing to do with this. But my point is. We communicated to the Islamic Republic of Iran that anything short of killing an American would not prompt a U.S. military response. And what do you do if you're a chess player? What do you do if you have consistent foreign policy? Is you test American red lines. And we're seeing that. Iran was so brazen in this recent attack that it launched from its own territory. Now, if you, if you read the reports, the Supreme Leader told the IRGC commander... Is it Salami right now? Who is it? Salami? Uh, 
you can do the attack, but don't make it look like it came from Iraq. So what they did was they had it fly over Iraq and Kuwait and into Saudi Arabia. If you look at the eyewitness reports, you have Iraqis in the marshlands of southern Iraq and Kuwaitis saying that they saw drones and that they saw, they, they didn't see the cruise missiles, there were two different launches. Uh, some people believe that there are UAV launches, or armed drone launches from Iraq and cruise missile launches from Iran. But this is a major escalation. Iran doesn't normally do this type of thing. But was it a successful attack? It hit infrastructure. The infrastructure was put back in place within, what, 15 days? Um, it didn't kill anyone. Is that a red line? If they would have killed Americans at Aramco, if they would have killed Saudis at Aramco, would that have been a red line? I don't know. But they're testing those red lines. May 15th was the first time we saw Iraqi militias, specifically Qatab Hezbollah, launch armed drone strikes against Saudi Arabia, a pipeline attack. For months, we believed it was from the Houthis. And we were looking at what kind of, what kind of UAV they had that could actually range this. And what's interesting about this is Qasem Soleimani got the Houthis to take responsibility for an attack that came from southern Iraq to mask this new front against Saudi Arabia, U.S. ally. Got to stop doing that. Um, and that's that, that's genius, right? That shows a capability that's almost an embarrassment to the United States a training equip program, the United States advisory program in Iraq that's not supposed to let things like this happen. We're supposed to be taking military capability away from bad actors and making sure that the Iraqi army is a national army that will protect all Iraqis, and instead you had the Iraqi military shut down its airspace to U.S. flights in southern Iraq. Shut down its airspace to U.S. intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets after the attack so that we could actually look at the point of origin. That, that's, that's unheard of. But that's advanced, it's sophisticated, it's an embarrassment, and it demonstrates a capability. Have these attacks been successful? They've, they've damaged some oil tankers. They haven't, they haven't killed anyone, they haven't sank anyone. Uh, they can't hold on to them. Anytime they do something, we can present evidence to the international community that shows what they did. Um, this attack on Saudi Arabia, and you have rocket attacks that go into the international zone. We set a bad precedence by closing down our consulate in Basra because of some errant mortars. Uh, we shut it down, and the people in southern Iraq got pretty upset about it because they wanted the U.S. presence there. They wanted us to be there to, to, to look at these issues. There's something going on in Iraq with these protests. Iraqis want Iran out and America in, but not America as a, as a uniform military presence. Not America as a diplomatic presence. American entrepreneurs, American professors, American tech, American IT. They want a relationship with America that allows an Iraqi to go to an American university, that allows an Iraqi to dream, that allows an Iraqi to think outside of the next 24 hours. But one of my most eye-awakening moments in Iraq was asking an Iraqi what his five-year plan was. And he looks at me and he says, what? I just want to make sure that I have enough food for tomorrow. Or I'm just happy that we're having breakfast right now. I'm happy that I have a fire for tonight. I'm happy that my car battery is going to be able to, you know, allow me to watch the, the football match tonight. You know, and it was, it was eye-opening because that's what life was like in 05 and 06 in Iraq. And that's what it reverted back to 
for Sunnis after Ramadi was destroyed, Mosul was destroyed, uh, Fallujah, half of it destroyed into Crete, uh, ransacked. You've got to get back to a place where seen in America means opportunity, not, not oppression. And, and we've got to get back to a foreign policy that's bipartisan, that looks at the Islamic Republic as a dedicated enemy, that accepts the fact that a flawed ally like Saudi Arabia is a necessary one. We can't make an enemy of the guardians of Mecca and Medina. You just can't. If I'm a terrorist leader, I'm going to tell all my recruits, look, the Americans hate Islam. Look, they, they, the guardians. So as soon as we became an enemy of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, they would no longer call it the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. They would now start calling it the guardians of Mecca and Medina. They would use it to recruit. We have to, we have to understand who our allies are. We have to understand this is the real world. And as we dip out of the Middle East and start focusing on Southeast Asia, Russia and China are dipping in. Russia and China and the Caribbean. They're in Central and South America because we're overstretched and we don't have a consistent foreign policy. It's easier to be an enemy of the United States, an adversary of the United States, than to be an ally of the United States because you don't know what kind of ally you're going to have uh, for, for four-year gaps, two-year gaps. And it's not enough to get people to do very difficult things that they can't trust that you'll be there to back them up. I'm going to try to stay on time here. The bottom line is, when I went to Europe, I said, it's not a war against America. This is a war against Europe. And what I meant by that is, what is the military goal of Iran's provo uh, provocations, their attacks? This whole strategy is not to get America to cave. It's to get Europe to cave. It's to get Europe to find these bypass mechanisms. It's to get Europe to put pressure on the United States. This is a war against Europe, not against the United States. And this designation, the, the key designation, the most significant designation, something we've been pushing for, for for two, three years now, is the designation of the Central Bank of Iran. And that happened in its entirety. And that is crippling. That kills the European bypass mechanisms. That makes that $15 billion that Macron was getting ready to push into Iran toxic. This maximum pressure campaign is working. It hopefully will work for another 13 months. If it goes for another uh, four years, it could be devastating, not to the Iranian people necessarily, but to the regime. The Iranian people, we, we talk to the diaspora all the time, and it's not, not the MEK, we're talking to Iranians, we're talking to uh, people that support Ahlavi, we're talking to people that are looking for Guaidos. Now there's a search for Guaidos in Iran, people that we can, we can identify and follow. They say the sanctions have to mean something, there has to be some strategy behind them, otherwise we're not going to be able to support them forever. There has to be a reason. And if you look at Pompeo's 12 steps, any combination of those 12, there's 13 now, I think. The human rights aspect just got put on. Of course, Iran will not adhere to all 12, and the president's a deal-maker. I'm not worried about the president saying, okay, just do these four, just do these three, just do these two. Any combination of two will collapse the regime. A combination of three will collapse the regime. If you look at those 12 points, they're designed to be unachievable. They're designed to collapse the regime. If you stop supporting Lebanese Hezbollah, what happens? If you stop weapons proliferation to militias and paying them, what happens? If you stop your nuclear program, what happens? And this last moment, then I'll open up to questions. And this last comment. I believe the JCPOA was unnecessary. Uh, why? It got rid of it. It got rid of an arms embargo. It got rid of uh, 
UN Security Council resolutions governing ballistic missiles. 2231 is still in place, but it has new language. It says, we call upon Iran to do the following things. And Zarif will say it. They're calling upon us to do it, but that doesn't mean we have to do it. They're just asking us. It's like a suggestion. It's like a stop sign in California. It's just a suggestion. Um, the JCPOA was nothing more than a way to get investment into Iran. Uh, to, to try to shore up the, the weaknesses in the MPT, to try to get a new deal, and I argue we don't, we don't need it. UN Security Council resolutions should be enough. UN Security Council resolutions against ballistic missiles with ramifications. They violate them. UN Security Council resolutions against regional behavior, weapons proliferation, support terrorism. And I loved hearing from our Russian counterparts. If you rush towards a bomb, we will do something about it. The question was asked, what will you do about it? Because we'll do something about it. Now, when you hear a Russian say, we'll do something about it, it's not like hearing an American say that. Because that just means, well, we're going to talk about it. It's going to be very complicated and complex, which means we're not going to do a thing about it. But when the Russian says it, it's different. And just my last point on, on the, the, the feckless JCPOA. Inside the JCPOA, Iran was able to do all these activities I talked about. Inside the JCPOA, Iran was six months to one year away from a bomb. Outside the JCPOA, they're six months away from we already have intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets on these sites that were carved out of the JCPOA. We have allies that are looking at it also. Macron's language is very tough on Iran. Any movement towards a bomb will result in a military action. Russia has said the same thing. Israel has said the same thing. The United States has said the same thing. We have a deterrence policy now that's being tested by Iran with these provocations, but that other deterrence is not just an American one if they rush towards a bomb. And um, jumping back into the JCPOA would be a mistake without changing any of these things. And Macron's language is very strong. Schumer's language is strong when it comes to North Korea, and so is Menendez. But the thing here is um, we have geopolitical foes and adversaries that, are, that think they have allies in American politicians and the result of an election, whether it be the Russians in 16, whether it be the Iranians in 2020 and other countries. We've got to get back to a foreign policy that's bipartisan. See, I'm considered a conservative because I'm against the Islamic Republic of Iran. I don't understand that. In 2008, Democrats and Republicans were against the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, we need to get back to a place where we can, we can have a foreign policy that is unchanged by election turnover because Americans recognize geopolitical foes as geopolitical foes. No end with that. Thank you. Right, we have a bit of time for questions, so I'm assuming we have quite a few. Yes. Uh, yeah, recently there was a report that down in Najran, in the Eastern province, that um, there were uh, Saudi soldiers, which Narjuan's part of Saudi Arabia, captured by the Yemenis, or was it really Right, bad? right. Yeah, what can you tell us about that? Do you know much about that? Well, There's I, not I, a lot of reporting on that. I mean, initially touted as a overrunning three Saudi brigades, uh, killing hundreds and capturing hundreds. But some of the experts are actually on the ground, uh, Yemeni experts, uh, that are, are not, don't have a position have said that no, it's it's fabricated. 
It didn't happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen, but at the same time, we don't know enough about it. The narrative is it did happen, but enough credible people are saying it didn't happen. There was actually uh, other other Yemeni that, that the Houthis actually were subjugating, uh, you know, capturing as they moved on captured territory. But it wouldn't surprise me at the same time, uh, not to disparage my, my Saudi, our Saudi allies, but, you know, when you outsource your military and you don't build it uh, the way it's supposed to be, I often say that... Uh, Saudi Arabia needs an Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Same thing that Qasem Soleimani has. Uh, Saudi Arabia says, who wants money? Five groups raise their hand, all of them get money. See, inshallah, go do great things. Qasem Soleimani says, who wants money? They raise their hand, says, come to Iran first. We're going to vet you. We're going to train you. We're going to identify the talent. We're going to provide lethal aid. We're going to marry you. And there's no divorce. And you're going to do this. And you're going to do this only. And that's the difference. And I think uh, there's two, I've been to Saudi Arabia several times now to look at their targeting process in, in Yemen. They are trying to conduct a US style campaign with intelligence and airstrikes without a capable ground force. And the UAE was there to protect key, key roads and key, uh, key terrain, but not necessarily move in coordination with airstrikes to retake territory. And I also said, listen, no one's ever gonna be impressed with how much money you can spend. I throw out a problem. If you're spending all this money to get humanitarian aid into Yemen, but it doesn't go anywhere, and the Houthis grab it, re-flag re it, and say it's theirs, or don't give it to anybody, then you're not doing anything. So, you know, the Hashoji killing was a, was a terrible failure. The Yemen war is a necessary war that's failing. And uh, we, can't, we can't have another Hezbollah uh, in southern you know, in, in the Middle East, uh, south of Saudi Arabia, and that's the goal. That's the goal. People say, are they a proxy? What are they? They're strategically aligned. They don't have to be 12ers to fall into the Walayat Fakah, however you say it. i got to learn to say that better. Um, but Saudis aren't very good at this. We're not very good at being a solid partner. We're there in Saudi Arabia to provide air defense assets now, to protect northern Saudi Arabia from attacks coming from Iraq and Iran, but we're not willing to, to look at, we're trying to help the targeting process now with, the, with Ansar Allah, but not really sure what the goal is other than negating capability, but you can't negate it if you don't have a consistent foreign policy. The Houthis are actually hoping for a 2020 turnout or 2020 election that favors them. And it doesn't mean the Democratic president would favor them. It just means the Democratic president is going to exit this relationship. At least that's what we're hearing. They're going to, it'll look the same on paper. We're going to support our Sunni regional allies. Some administrations use five lanes of a superhighway to support an ally. Other administrations use the access road. But on paper, it looks the same. It's the application of foreign policy that's different. And we're seeing uh, investigations on Saudi Arabia, not on Iran. They're, I'm not being asked to be an expert witness on ISIS anymore or on what the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is doing. Uh, they're asking for expert witnesses on Saudi Arabia, on Saudi, on Saudi support to terrorism, which is fine. But we have, to, we have to remember there's a difference between the Islamic Republic of Iran ordering a terrorist attack and adventurists in Saudi Arabia throwing money at terrorists. It's not command-directed by, by the government. 9-11 was not command-directed by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, Americans have joined ISIS, Saudis joined Al-Qaeda. An adventurous, wealthy adventurous in the royal family provided funds. 
Yes, but it doesn't mean it was command directed, and that's the that's the argument now that we're having. You know, is Saudi Arabia as bad as Iran? And I would say it's flawed, but it's a necessary ally. Yes, ma'am. Um, anyway, um, so we're coming from a perspective of conflict analysis and yes. dynamics, and looking at the perspective of the other party. And I've also been to every NPT, Rep Com and Rep Con that's been in New York since 2000. Right. So I'm involved in that. Just a few points. One is, so one is, you sort of can only just look at their behavior without looking at the effect of our actions. Right. Um, so one in 2003, there was a peace offering. Um, envoy, and which Bush ignored, and then in his state of the speech, he called them the evil, the axis of evil. Sorry, threatening them. So if you look at there, so what you're talking about, 2005, six, seven, would have been different if we responded. I don't think so. Um, no, no, I don't. I don't think so because of their proven track record over 40 years. But, but that's the only reason I say that. Well, words, words, death to America, death to Israel are just words, right? Okay, so, so is axis, so is axis. It's just words, but okay. we look at actions. Okay, there's a, a little fringe that are saying that the, the main culture and the different no, it's the position of the government. We're not talking about the Iranian people. We're talking about the Islamic Republic. We're talking about okay. the government. Okay. I'm not talking about the Iranian people. Right. I'm not talking about 70 million Iranians. I'm talking about the small government that's very unpopular with 70 million Iranians. That's who we're talking okay. about. Okay, well, but I. No, but it's it's a fact. It's not an okay. It's not okay, a talking well, point. I, it's I a fact. Well, the Supreme Leader makes all the decisions, and Rouhani is a spokesperson. Okay. Well, I'm just saying that Rouhani is not. It's easy to say that, and it's easy to whip up antagonism against Iran. Well, just two more points. One is, you said that it didn't start with the JCPOA, but the JCPOA, from their perspective, and our that well, also from our perspective. Also don't have a say. They were getting air jets. They wanted to. They they wanted right. to be part of the world. Many of the population are very cultured. Women yes. have more rights. They're highly educated. There, so dynamics could change a lot in ten years. Yes, um, we're hoping. And the other that. thing is that they were they were complying with the JCPOA, and it was since we Trump walked out of it. That, and they were still trying. They, they didn't stop complying right away, and they tried to get well, support. They're, they're cheating on... Uh, so I'll just say, first off, they embarrassed the Obama administration every day during the JCPOA with their provocations. Uh, there's congressional testimony. I testified. I said, listen, there would still be an Iran deal today if there weren't ballistic missile tests, if they didn't give lethal capability to the Houthis, if they didn't prop up Assad, if they didn't try to buy S-300s from the Russians, if they didn't invite the Russians into Syria, there would still be a JCPOA. I never looked at the nuclear program to complain about the Iran deal. It was Annex 2, everything that was fueling these activities. But they were cheating in Annex 1, Section T. They were doing computer models on weapon triggers, on, on warheads. Uh, they also carved out sites. The IEA said that there was a radioactive presence that was not declared. They were not allowed access to those sites. Uh, I think... 
Right, but you have the proposal of how to improve relationships yeah. over time rather than just... Yeah, well, but I don't think I've... Have I talked about war with Iran? Have I talked about escalation? I haven't. I've said... What? All right, but this is escalation. How is it escalation? Right. It's dealing with an enemy, seeing them for what they are. I, I, I wish we could go with hope. That's very, you know, good guy, Dick. I'm, I'm trying to be as nuanced as I can. I keep hitting these things. I'm trying to get be as nuanced as I can. Well, no, there's, there's hope. We should move on to another oh, yeah, question. But we have, afterwards, we can talk about this some more. Yeah, yeah, just, I don't believe that hope is a method for foreign policy. I, I, did I say anything about hope? Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Maybe. That's yeah, hope. I, yes, sir. I don't deal with yeah, that. Um, I sponsor a Saudi, and he asked me what Saudi Arabia should do after the drone attack refinery. So I'll ask you what Right. So I say we should absorb all these attacks. Absorb them. This is what war with Iran looks like. Absorb them. Don't react militarily. Stop. <laughs> don't react militarily. Uh, we're putting in defensive capabilities. We didn't know we had to put in patriots and avengers in northern Saudi Arabia because we didn't know there'd be a threat from Iraq and Saudi Arabia. The, this is what war with Iran looks like. A series of provocations, I would argue unsuccessful attacks, so sure you're hitting infrastructure, you're not killing anybody yet. Uh, absorb them, put in defensive capabilities, and continue to give information to the international community. Uh, when we, it's getting harder and harder for regime advocates to defend it. I was supposed to be on a debate with somebody who, from NIAC who was supposed to defend the regime and couldn't. Couldn't. It was more of the talk of like, well, maybe we should try something different. The regime's not hoping we try something different so that it can moderate. It wants to stay the same and excel its activities. It has aspirations. It's not trying to moderate. There are poets, singers, writers that we'll never hear from in the Islamic Republic because once they step out of certain parameters, they disappear. They go to Evan prison. The besiege was built to quiet them. The besiege was built so that we'll never know their names. Uh, what we need to do is continue to absorb the attacks, uh, present intelligence to the international community, and get everybody on board. How how Strong would it be if Europe simply said, we agree with the United States, we're going to continue sanctions, and we put a spotlight on the protests in Iran like we do in Hong Kong. We put a spotlight on the protests in Iraq like we do in Hong Kong. We're not doing that because there's not a free press in Iran. There's not access. We can't go in there and do things. Uh, that's what we should do. Absorb, put in the defensive capability, and shoot down drones and shoot down cruise missiles. Lebanese Hezbollah is not ready for a war. They're the wallet card. North Korea taught U.S. generals in our war colleges that we can't do anything against North Korea because they'll decimate South Korea with artillery and rockets. Iran learned the same thing. They won't do anything against us because they're worried about what Lebanese Hezbollah will do to Israel, what Hamas will do to Israel, what the Palestinian Islamic Jihad will do to Israel with precision-guided rockets and missiles. And we're seeing that Lebanese Hezbollah and Nasrallah kind of happy where they're sitting right now and aren't necessarily willing to put themselves at risk with confrontation. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Uh, are you concerned, or is the military concerned, about the problem of chronology and the patience of the American people to continue to support these activities and wars in the Middle East? For 19 years, since yeah. 2001, could you imagine John Kennedy, elected president in 
Don't you think it's time? Uh, how do they view uh, the chronology? I mean, I think most Americans aren't aren't interested. They're not. I, I think most Americans are tuned out. The Iraq War and the Afghan War is, a, is something you change when you see it on TV. Change the channel. Go to something else. I've argued. I've used this football analogy a lot. If we ran wars like Belichick runs the Patriots, we would have been out of Afghanistan and Iraq in three to four years. But we ran, we've run these wars like Daniel Snyder runs the Redskins. Change the team out every year in hopes of a Super Bowl, and end up staying there 17 years without one. But this is what's key about American foreign policy. In World War II, in Vietnam, our counterparts saw the same American until the conflict was over. In Iraq, they've seen 17 versions of me. They've seen 19 versions of me in Afghanistan. And each time an American asks you to do something very difficult, to put your life at risk, and each time it's a different American and the same Taliban leader is there, you don't, you're not going to put yourself at risk. And that's one of the situations. But America's tuned out. I think they are, and I think that's why you have an all-volunteer military. We're part of, what, the 1% of the population that is served, and those that have been killed are less than that. It's, Americans can tune out. It's the benefit of being a, an ocean away. And I was asked this in, in Paris. I said, who are you to tell us about a country that we're closer to? You know, you're in the United States, you're way over there, why are you telling us to care about a country that's in our area? I said, oh, we just don't think you care. <laughs> that's the issue. We don't think you care about the Islamic Republic because you're not worried about them launching ballistic missiles at Europe, and you don't care if they do launch them at Israel, unfortunately. That's, that's that 2,000 kilometer range. But that's it. It's a, it's a longer discussion. I'm sorry I went over. No, Any no, more questions? We still have more time. Uh, yes, sir. Yes. Uh, do, you, do you think uh, we're starting to see a split in the ideologies between the IRGCC and the Islamic government, considering the actions of the IRGCC and the lip service that the government is giving us? So there's three groups within the IRGC that we've seen so far in the last, since 2015. So the Islamic uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy that put those sailors on their knees, they were trying to derail their logic. They didn't want it. They thought that the Supreme Leader and the IRGC should never make a deal with, with the great Satan because they bought into that. So they try to sabotage it. Then you have another group of moderates that think that the regime is overstepped. And if you look at the, the last four months, there's been two separate groupings of IRGC officers that have been uh, charged with spying for the United States or, or charged with uh, trying to overthrow the government. Two groupings of 150 IRGC officers. And then you have the, the ones that are worse than that, the ones that when, when we talk about regime change, so what happens if the regime collapses, what comes next? And, and the argument not to do anything is that these IRGC members will be worse than anything we've seen, uh, or they'll fall into the insurgency and they'll be a hell of a lot more capable than the Baptist Saddamists were. And then there's, you know, again, I'm not hoping, there's, there's the, the thinking that somehow if the regime collapses, everybody would just, you know, want peace and want to open up a bakery and want, uh, you know, micro loans in order to do things. And we haven't seen that in Iraq, and I don't think we'd see it in Iran. Uh, but there is there is a split. It's either to be harder, to be softer. But at the end of the day, the moderates, the moderates are the poets, the writers, the singers, the dreamers that we'll never hear from, and the hardliners are the ones that are in charge. And it's never about the 70 million Iranians. It's always about the small grouping of leadership that decides. Yes? 
Thank you for your service. I know you've been underground. Perception is reality. How come um, we don't have a cohesive strategic communication? For example, VOA just introduced the 365, and the director was proud to say that now you're buying programming from George Stephanopoulos, the CNN, and why do we need to watch Greta Van Susteren's translation go to Iran or China right. instead of using the reporters? So, and I, I believe you're throwing a lot of money into our international yes. broadcast, and you're not. And I'm not saying they're not. They should cover President Trump all the time, but we should, you know, cover what's being real, you know. So, as you know, right. at word perception is reality. Right. Right. We, we've somehow politicized our capabilities. The VOA changed quite a bit under the Obama administration, and the Trump administration hasn't fixed it. Uh, it was promoting narratives that supported the JCPOA. Uh, I did a study with Elon Berman, and we were asked to do it by the, the Board of uh, Presidents, uh, or VOA, or BB, BBG? Yeah, that, right, 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 right. And we looked at the, the programming, and we saw that as soon as somebody came on and started saying bad things about the regime, they were told, well, that's not what this conversation is about, and they were let go. So was it a crime of commission or a crime of omission? Uh, and we saw that there was some, some uh, biased reporting. Uh, and then they'll, they'll say at the same time, they say, no, no, we're not, we're not biased because we had Mike Prigent on the other day, and he talked about Iran. <laughs> or we had Elon Berman on the other day, and he talked about Iran. So there is, um, they do give us a platform, they do ask us to speak, and I have good relationships with, with their reporters, and we've been able to say good things, but it's whether it's the, the frequency of it and also the, the uh, percentage of that that's important. But I don't know why we're... If we, if we started just being too political with VOA, supporting the Trump administration, it would just be tuned out, say, okay, this is just propaganda. Uh, much like we were doing in Iraq, it would just turn off our, our stations. Uh, in Iraq, the ones that were associated with Rumsfeld or associated with DOD. But we need to have Iranians speak. That's the biggest thing, and, and there are Iranian speakers that aren't allowed on VOA. Not, not MEK people, but, but other people that are very eloquent. They, they can talk about all these issues. They can, they can reach a loud audience. And I don't know why in today's, in today's world with technology and all these capabilities, why we can't put a spotlight on what's going on in Iran and get this leadership, leaderless movement, a voice to be seen. I mean, if you look at the CNN coverage of the protests, they would show the protests and they would show the protests for the regime, in support of the regime, the march for the regime. So we've lost our sense of being American rebels, right? We can say, F the president, it's not brave, it's not rebellious, it's, we've cheapened being an American rebel to the point where it means nothing. You go to a coffee shop, you can say whatever you want. No one's going to arrest you, put you in jail, and you're going to disappear forever. In Iran, if you protest against the regime, you can disappear. So what's interesting about that, those two different protests, CNN covers the protests that were out there because they had to be, because the government said get out there and protest, and if not, there will be repercussions, versus the protesters that were out there under the fear of being disappeared, under the fear of being targeted, fear of being arrested. And that's something that, that we should... The Islamic Republic of Iran is built for Democrat support, to be against it, to be against what it does to homosexuals, to dissidents, to women, the hijab. And the hijab movement could actually bring down the regime. 
I mean, you literally have relatives of, of women that have taken out the hijab that are now being put in prison by the regime for simply being a brother or encouraging his sister to, to speak up and stand out. That's, that's a Democrat movement. That's a re true rebel. That, that's something that Americans should be able to get behind, but we politicized it to the point where if you talk about these things, you, know, you have the whataboutism arguments, or if you talk about these things, it, it's, it's politicized to the point where you have adversaries hoping for election outcomes that they think will favor them. And I just think that's a problem for the United States and the region and the people that are seeking freedom in these countries. Any last questions? I think we've covered the problem. All right. Thank you. Thank you.